Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Progressive News Network. It's showtime. Sunday, May 17. We're well into our lockdown. Actually, you know, here in Florida, we are opening back up. And this week, I I, I went to, I didn't go in, but I drove my husband to the service center at the car place to check out a battery. He thought his battery was dead. Turned out it wasn't. Um, and uh, then went to a park to uh, just fart around. And uh, nobody, nobody is wearing any kind of masks. People aren't observing uh, social distancing. I get it. You know, we're tired of it and everything. But uh, I think like a lot of people are, are rightly afraid that we're going to see a second wave of um, illness and worse from what's going on with COVID. So, y'all, even though things are opening up, and I know the people that I'm talking to are are all cool and keep a mask in your glove box, et cetera, but, you know, maybe remind the people around you just just that it's – here's the thing. You might not feel like you are at risk when you go someplace, but think of the people who are behind the register, who are there all day long and see hundreds of customers just like you. They deserve, they deserve for you to show a little bit of um, respect for their health. A lot of times people uh, who work in places like, let's say like, Disney, Disney Springs, you know, these, these places that are starting to open up again. I saw uh, people sharing on Twitter all of these just nuts so, uh, blog comments about how, oh, we're not going to go to Disney Springs until you stop making us wear masks. So, you know, good. Disney is, is requiring people to wear masks. Folks should not be pushing back on that because you know what people who work at Disney can't afford to have a health crisis. Look, you know, I mean, uh, the people who inhabit our bodies that we call ourselves, et cetera, et cetera, we're not the only people in the world. It's all the other people. It's not just about protecting us. It's about protecting them. Um, healthcare and medicine is socialized whether we like it or not it just is our health depends on other people's health our health depends on our community's health and so on and so forth so um just a little public service reminder this week on progressive news network we have of course janine maloff with the justice report at 8 30. we have two amazing interviews that rick spizak has done actually one interview and one um report, uh, recorded report. Uh, One, 
his recorded report is with Kings Bay Anti-Nuclear Group. Uh, it's from their press conference. There's a couple of people in the group. I should bring up my message on this. A couple of people in the group are facing a probable 15 to 30 years uh, these are peace activists and anti-nuke activists. Um, they're going to be sentenced this week. Uh, this is the anti, this is the Kings Bay anti-nuke activist press conference, and we'll hear from them at the top of the hour. At the bottom of this hour, we have uh, more in depth with former or retired uh, Florida International University professor Jerry Brown. Not to be confused with the other Jerry Brown, who is governor, was governor of California. Different Jerry Brown. This Jerry Brown is also an anti-nuclear activist from way back. Um, but also, he has written a book uh, called The Psychedelic Gospel, I think. I'm going to have to look that up now. Because I have something else called gospel that I want to share with you. I might have this confused. Uh I will be filling out my show notes, actually, as we go along tonight with uh, links and more information on the stuff that we talk about. Um, we played a, a really nice interview with Jerry Brown two weeks ago, I believe it was, and I had a little bit of technical difficulty running up into his show or his, his interview. So we wanted to circle back, do a little bit more in-depth. And this time, God willing, uh, my computer's power center will not die on me. So two weeks ago, as I was doing the show, right at the top of the hour at 8 o'clock when I was getting ready to play Jerry Brown's thing, my computer died. I kept doing the show from my other mobile devices that I keep with me as a redundancy you know, if we have that kind of problem again, same thing, I will switch over and make sure that, that we continue. But I wanted to make sure that uh, we spent good quality time with Jerry Brown. It is the Psychedelic Gospels, the History of Hallucinogens in Christianity. It's a great book that he's done. It's available on, on Amazon and any place that you get uh, uh, reading material. You don't have to buy through Amazon. Uh, Jerry Bezos does not need a second trillion dollars. But, however, the Psychedelic Gospels, uh, Secret History of Hallucinogens and Christianity is a, just a mind-bending book talking about uh, uh, psychedelic iconography, mushroom iconography, uh, the iconography of hallucinogens in uh, uh, Christian artwork of the Middle Ages. Let's just say the Middle Ages. Uh, we think that this tradition goes back to first century uh, Christianity, which would be the Gnostics. And, uh, but the evidence that we have for the iconography comes later on. <clears throat> that's just, a, that's just a, a matter of what is available in terms of artifacts and so on and so forth. Anyway, Jerry Brown, fantastic interview. And he's, he's very interested in what's called the psychedelic Renaissance. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this a little bit in the past about how, you know, there was first wave psychedelia that started with the, uh, 
um, with the, but basically started with 10 Kesey being dosed by the government uh, under, I want to say that was the MK Ultra program. Uh, so the, uh, the uh, U.S. government was really interested in psychedelics there for a while, along with everybody else. Uh, Ken Kesey was who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest um, and who is the subject of a great Tom Wolfe book called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which tells the whole story of all of this. Um, yeah, he, uh, he had a, a job that put him in a, uh, a mental health setting. And in that mental health setting, there were researchers who were doing government contracting that were doing this work and he, he loved it. And so he wanted to stay close to that. And, um, Thus began the first wave of psychedelia in the United States. The second wave, I like to say, was in the 80s. During the 80s, there was a, a little-known resurgence that was the beginning of when people were starting to see MDMA or ecstasy produced and uh, uh, used widely uh that also coincided with you know some of the last days of the grateful dead touring and the the emergence of a lot of new touring musical acts that uh crossed over within grateful dead territory so you had fish and you had uh the different festivals like the horde festival and the um wild palooza and all of that um mostly though this kind of culture was to be found uh, dead shows with uh, one cohort of people fish at a uh, similar cohorts. Uh, that was the 80s, the early 90s. Um, that's what you saw in popular media. But what was going on that I think was way more interesting was uh, a lot of psychedelic culture that formed around Austin, Texas. And bands like the Flaming Lips and the Butthole Surfers and, you know, some of these, uh, you know, second waivers, you know, I think the music was better, too. I mean, to be honest, I've, I went to my fair share of dead shows because of the culture. I like the culture, but I could not stand the music except for space and drums. I think we've talked about this before. Uh, it, to me, there is nothing more boring than sitting through a couple of sets of the Grateful Dead doing Grateful Dead songs. I mean, every once in a while, there's a song that I sort of like, but um, by and large, pretty boring if you're not uh, on the drug train. So uh, I don't know how I got off on that tangent. So we're going to, we have this in-depth interview with Dr. Jerry Brown, and we're going to bring you part one this week, and then we're going to do part two next week. Uh, this is part of something I want to do with the show and with the, with the network in general. Um, I think that, and tell me if I'm wrong, you know, send me a message, DM me, uh, talk about it on Twitter in, in my Twitter post or on Facebook, on my Facebook post, tell me what you think, but I crave a little bit more culture with my news. Uh, we can all get super burned out on um, on politics, on the stuff that's happening 
in the news, like that you would get on cable news stations, uh, the, just the stuff that's going on. A lot of it is really freaking heavy. And I think we need a little break from that. Not just a break, not to turn away from it, but to integrate other experiences into it, you know, and to make a, a, a more complete picture of who we are and what we're doing at this point in time. Uh, and I love the fact that there is this psychedelic re renaissance to talk about. Uh, and relating to that, I found this really funny article, I and mean, funny to me because it's in Forbes. This is Forbes magazine, you know, that's a... Uh, um, geared towards people who make a lot of money of a certain age demographic. We're talking boomers. And they did this piece that came out May 11 this month uh, called MAPS Founder. Uh, MAPS stands for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, M-A-P-S. MAPS Founder Rick Doblin, uh, you're never too old for a psychedelic experience. Now, this is something that Jerry Brown uh, talks about in his interview. Now, he'll, and you'll be hearing a little bit more of this, but there is a, a move uh, with groups like MAPS to use psychedelics, specifically with MAPS. They have, uh, they have the green light now and, uh, and funding and FDA approval to conduct a phase three study of uh, MDMA for treatment uh, of treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. That's really cool. Um, so MAPS founder Rick Doblin does this interview with Abby Rosner of Forbes. And this is an angle that I never thought that I would see on psychedelics when I was uh, riding that second wave in the 80s. But what this is talking about is using psychedelics in a hospice con context and in the context of working with uh, essentially geriatric and gerontology uh, patients or seniors that are looking at end of life issues, but also not just people who are in hospice and not just people who are eminently facing the uh, big eternal, but also just as a, just as a, it, it, it kind of sounds like, like what they're after is a, is kind of a, a treatment for just dealing with aging, just, just counseling and therapeutic uh, experiences for older folks. And I, and I find this really interesting and, you know, you can read between the lines I'm going to share a few a few words from this, but you can read between the lines and you can kind of see that what's going on here is you have uh, a specific class of people. Uh, you've got boomers who have some money who don't necessarily, uh, you know, they they have the power and the ability to demand certain things of. Uh, society and of culture that other people don't. And so, you know, when wealthy boomers start deciding, hey, let's trip again, like we did last, you know, couple decades ago, then their needs are going to be met. And my thought is, well, you know what, let their needs be met, let that all happen. And let's see if, if that can 
benefit uh, society in a larger sense, so that we're not just talking about wealthy donors. Um, so this article talks about how they are using classical psychedelics like LSD, mescaline, psilocybin, and ayahuasca, uh, DMT, and ketamine in this therapeutic environment. Now, ketamine happens to be available now in, in a ridiculously expensive manner in spa environments and in these, these counseling centers that are they're using ketamine in these like these these waves of I think you need to sign up for three or six sessions because it's a it's a therapeutic course that you're supposed to be doing um, but just kind of weird that you can walk into a, a, a fancy spa-like environment in the suburbs of Orlando there's a couple in Orlando, as a matter of fact, and, uh, and, and take ketamine totally legally and in a comfortable setting. It's ridiculously expensive, though, y'all. It's, like, it's not like going to the club and, <clears throat> and uh, you know, like the good old days. But safe and psychologically uh, um, secure environment that they're offering. Now, what Doblin says in this article, I think, is really interesting. Um, he says, he gives some really, really solid advice. He says that for, that there's no one who's too old to take uh, psychedelics. He says that there's people too young to take psychedelics, that people under 18 shouldn't be fooling around with this, same as how they shouldn't be fooling around with other uh, substances. You're still growing and whatever. Uh, your, your brain is still creating itself it's not quite all the way baked as it should be uh seniors since they're doing it in a hospice setting he makes the point that there's no one who's too old to do uh to do these substances but what you have to look out is for is health so if people have imminent cardiac issues you don't want to give them something like a dmt that is going to uh have a um impact on cardio and you don't want and you want to stay away from a substance like ibogaine that also has a, a it's a psychedelic effect but it also has a uh, um can be really really hard on your cardiovascular system uh but the other drugs psilocybin lsd ayahuasca if you don't mind vomiting publicly that's something that's something that's available there there is actually an ayahuasca church in big quotation marks an ayahuasca church here in orlando that uh i was uh, thinking about checking out before covid happened um nothing worse than vomiting in front of people and getting covid so i'm going to just you know stick a pin in that maybe look uh, circle back to them in a year or so whenever we're past this um Doblin says, Doblin says, this is a, this is pretty cool. Uh, he says that uh, 
pioneering psychedelic researcher Stan Groff, and Jerry Brown will talk about Stan Groff a little bit. Stan Groff had a quote that he used to say that he who dies or experiences, in this case, what he means is experiences ego dissolution before he dies, doesn't die when he dies. And what that means is that you still die, but you don't necessarily feel like it's been meaningless or that it's over. Um, that's a big promise. And if anything is going to deliver on that, a, a, you know, a heroic dose of five dried grams of uh, mushrooms will probably get you there. Um, what I've seen, he says, in some people that were facing life-threatening Ill illnesses is that through the psychedelic experience, they lost a lot of their fear of death. And they switched their focus from the time that they uh, don't have left on the clock to the time that they do have left on the clock and live that time more fully. He says, I think, so I think one of the things you can say is that for psychedelically experienced boomers, which I got to imagine is, is, is a good um, cohort there. There's going to be quite a few psychedelically uh, non-naive boomers. Uh, th there'll be a lot more willingness to embrace death um, rather than try to do whatever they can to forestall it. Um, that seems a little grim. It does. It really does. Uh, but, but this is the, this is the, the framing that, that they're going for here. Uh, I never would have thought that if and when psychedelics became accepted by society at large, that it would be in that context. Like, let's get, let's get our grandparents tripping. Oh, there was a last thing on the article. Super interesting. He says, um, one of the problems of the boomers is that when we got into psychedelics, there were no elders to teach us anything about it. So he's speaking as a, as a boomer himself. So I would say that the other part of the boomer job is going to be to introduce the value of psychedelics to their grandchildren. Well, I'm here to tell you that there are probably quite a few grandchildren who could teach the boomers a thing or two about psychedelics. Uh, and his, his, uh, the person who's interviewing him says, well, if that's the case, I think in a larger sense, you and MAPS are helping to fulfill that role for society. Because at this point, I don't see a whole cohort of elders who can do that work. Well, I'm here to volunteer my services. I can 100% help some elders with that, help some young youngsters. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. There was one thing that I wanted to get to with regard to this. Yes. Okay, in the last few minutes before we start the interview with Jerry Brown, I want to mention that, that you know, pop culture at large is, in a bizarre way, really starting to embrace this. And it's not just with regard to hospice, and it's not just regard with regard to um, geriatrics and gerontology. Uh, if you are watching Netflix as much as anybody else, you might have noticed that there is a, a documentary. It's kind of an, an interview show called um, Have a Good Trip, uh, Adventures in 
psychedelics, which me and my husband watched this weekend. And so it's a bunch of celebrities talking about their tripping experiences. So you got like Sting telling you about how Sting likes to trip and his experiences and Sarah Silverman and um, Rob Corddry, who was actually very uh, cool. I related probably the most to, to Rob Corddry. Uh, I have a critique of this, and that is that we don't need any more celebrities telling us how to do anything. I don't want to know about celebrities telling me how to do my skincare routine, and I certainly don't want celebrities to tell me how to conduct my psychedelic adventures. Uh, there was a lot of bad advice that was shared on that show. There were some funny stories. There was a little bit of good advice. But by and large, it was just kind of what you would expect from, you know, people who were like, hey, here's a good idea, but we're not going to really throw ourselves into it. Because that's the way celebrities roll, y'all. Um, skip it. That's a skip it for me. I mean, you know, we're at the bottom of the barrel right now with our, our, our Netflix uh, uh, potential viewing selections. So there it is. But let me tell you about one that's really worth your time. And that is Duncan Trussell's The Midnight Gospels. Oh, my God. These are little half-hour tidbits that's Duncan Trussell kind of doing an interview, doing his interview style. And if you don't know Duncan Trussell, he's, he's got a great podcast called the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. He, he's, he's, he's a friend of Joe Rogan, so he's done a lot on Joe Rogan. He's a, a, a stand-up comic and musician, just an all-around, you know, he's, he's kind of this shaman-y uh, kind of podcast figure. I find him so uh, reassuring or, or listening to Duncan Trussell is like listening to a little brother that, that you, that you just adore. He's just adorable in a, in a way. So he's done this, it's this animated series called the Midnight Gospels. And each episode is, is uh, animated with this, um, he has this character who he says is doing a space cast. Um, and I should have this up somewhere. Maybe I don't. No, here it is. Uh, Midnight Gospels follows a space caster, a video podcaster in space named Clancy Gilroy, who lives in a dimension called the Chromatic Ribbon, where simulation farmers use powerful biocomputers to simulate universes to harvest technology. Each episode revolves around Clancy's travels through planets within the simulator with the beings inhabiting these worlds as he guests, as the guests he interviews for his space cast. So he's got Anne Lamont, you know, who's a, who, who writes about writing uh, and is a, really awesome. That episode was great. Dr. Drew, much better than I expected it would be. Um, Caitlin Doty, Trudy Goodman, Jason Lube, David Nick Turn, Damian Eccles. This is worth your time. And let me give you some advice. Don't binge these. You cannot binge this show. You can watch one, maybe two. That's it. One, maybe two a night. And just let it wash over you. Because this is deep. This is, 
he goes deep. And the animation is wonderful, and it 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 kind of makes the interviews it, it it adds something instead of detracting something. This is done so well. Uh, have a nice trip. That's you know that's just yeah it's fun. It's what it is. What it is. Um, you got to see uh, in a have a nice trip. You got to see uh, Carrie Fisher. Yeah, you know, and she's passed away, and she's just so wonderful. I just love her. Um, and you got to see a side of her that you probably haven't seen before. So maybe it's worth it just to watch Carrie Fisher in Have a Nice Trip, okay? Maybe that's it. But uh, if you want to know a little bit more of where we are in terms of the headspace of the psychedelic renaissance, check out the Midnight Gospels. Oh my gosh, you won't be disappointed. Maybe you will. I don't know. I wasn't disappointed. I love Duncan Trussell, though. I think he's amazing. I love his show. I love his attitude. I love how just open he is. I could do a little bit less with the Ron Doss stuff. Come on, you guys. He wasn't the only person who ever said anything about tripping. Uh, we can do better. Uh, it, everything doesn't have to be about Ron Doss. Don't at me on that. Um, I, I think he's just fine, but uh, but he's, he's he's overdone. He's overdone at this point. Um, we left out this week because had I not had so much to share with you, I would have gone on for another half hour about uh, what did I have down here? Um, ideology and uh, and. Uh, uh, and stuff. I was just going to talk about ideology and I have a lot to say about that. I think I'm going to save it for an extra because I'm thinking Sundays are going to be for less of a bummer. You know, I'm going to try to lay off the bummer stuff for our Sundays. So having said that, we are, when we come back, we are going to start the interview with Jerry Brown. Again, this is going to be part one. We're going to do part two and there might I think there might not even be a part three by the end. I think we've got a total of 90 minutes worth of content, but I didn't want to um, harsh you guys with uh, with 90 minutes all tonight. So we're just going to do the first segment of this. Uh, we'll, we'll have Jerry Brown right after this uh, little interlude. That was about me clearing my throat and getting a drink of water. Okay. Uh, we are Professor Jerry Brown, part one. Here we go. 27 minutes, 30 seconds. Seconds. We'll see you at the top of the hour. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Progressive News Network has the great honor of bringing Professor J uh, Jerry Brown, uh, anthropologist and uh, researcher in matters psychedelic, 
both for their sociological impact and for their therapeutic impact. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to also introduce Brooke Hines, our executive producer, and uh, the three of us are going to have a little discussion. Uh, Dr. Brown, you should talk a little bit about uh, how you first got interested or introduced to the world of psychedelic phenomena. Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you very much, uh, Rick and Brooke, for having me on the show. Um, this really happened back in uh, 1973. Um, I was a founding professor of anthropology at Florida International University and started there in 1972, right when the university opened. I was in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at that time. And in 1973, a friend of mine in Miami invited me to attend a Rainbow Family Gathering high in the mountains of the Rockies, in the Rocky Mountain National Forest uh, near an area called Strawberry Lake. And there I experienced with uh, 5,000 other people <laughs> my first uh, LSD trip. And while it was not as disorienting as the surprising experience of Dr. Albert Hoffman, who took the first LSD trip in recorded history, uh, unplanned, of course, uh, he thought he was dying. He thought he was losing his mind and dying. I had a very frightening experience that spun me off into a Carlos Castaneda-like world of competing forces and powers and power objects. And it really frightened me. There was a period where I honestly thought I was losing uh, control of my faculties. And I realized one, yes, these uh, LSD and other psychoactive substances are indeed extremely powerful. And number two, I wanted to learn more, a lot more about them. And as a professor, I designed and taught a course starting in 1975 called Hallucinogens and Culture at Florida International University. It's still taught today, although I retired in 2014. And I believe it is the first four credit college course in the United States on psychedelics. So that was my introduction. And uh, I went to my union representative at that time and I said, Bob, uh, can I talk about my experiences? We have to remember this is after the 1970 Controlled Substances Act, which made LSD, psilocybin, and most other known psychedelics, Schedule I uh, criminal activities, no uh, redeeming factors could not be used on human subjects. And when Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America, according to Nixon, uh, if only that were our biggest problem today, and he said, I said, uh, to my union representative, uh, you know, can I, can I talk about my experience? He says, absolutely not. And I said, well, can I have students talk about their experiences? He says, not if you want to keep your job. And I said, well, I guess field work, the keystone of anthropology is completely out of the question. And he said, not if you want to get tenure. So this was kind of a paradox. And I decided this was not going to be <clears throat> a just say no course to kind of in, um, obsequiousness to Nancy Reagan's uh, policy, and it wasn't going to be uh, everything to great about psychedelics. It was going to be an academic study of psychedelics and culture. So I used a sort of Harvard case study method used in law schools and business schools and looked at the key landmark studies in psychedelics 
and culture and history. Uh, how Soma, what the, the uh, ancient potion of the Hindu Rig Veda was embedded at the base in the Hindu religion. How uh, the reindeer herders of Siberia, known as the fathers of shamanism, had been, been using Amanita muscaria, that red and white decorated mushroom, for thousands of years in their shamanic practices. How there was a psychoactive fungi at the base of the Greek Eleusinian mysteries, which went on for 2,000 years. So that was my introduction to psychedelics, and that was uh, the course that I designed. And that's how I got my introduction to it. It wasn't until 2006, if you want to touch on this later on, that I made a surprising discovery of a psychoactive mushroom in a, in a Christian church in Roslyn Chapel in Scotland that I went, my wife, co-author, uh, researcher, photographer, Julie M. Brown and I uh, began the research and were inspired to undertake the research that eventually led to our book, The Psychedelic Gospels. Uh, since that time, we've been researching, writing on both the history of psychedelics and religion and also on the psychedelic uh, renaissance, including mystical experience in psychedelics. And Professor. I guess uh, Julie, starting as a psychonaut in the 1960s and in the 1970s, uh, psychedelics have been really fundamental for our life in terms of developing uh, psychedelic experiences that led to passion and purpose in terms of career work, uh, that led to a profound experience that helped me choose love over fear in, in developing a relationship with Julie, and even psychedelics ayahuasca that helped me overcome a rare depression late in life. So that's a brief overview of how I became involved in the field of psychedelics. Professor, let me ask you one question about the very about your, should we say, entree into the field of the psychedelic experience. Uh, in that time, in the late 60s and early 70s, of course, this was uh, the era of uh, the, the what we call the culture wars nowadays, uh, where the young people had kind of their approach to to reality, rejected a lot of the. Uh, consumerism. They rejected a lot of rat race ideas and were looking for something else and creating their own alternative economics and social dynamics. Um, a lot of people were kind of lining up, uh, where did you fall on this uh, this arc from uh, the, the free love, uh, uh, ex drop, tune in, turn on, drop out uh, mentality to the you know more conservative, and of course, the, the pro-war and all those other things that went to it. I was wondering, did you have any concepts uh, when you had that first experience at that uh, that World Family Gathering? Uh, did you expect this to be just a fun experience, kind of a mild intoxication, or did you have an inkling that there might be more to it from what you heard? You know, we always heard about set and setting. Uh, were you set up to have fun, or was this set up to be something a little deeper? Well... Um, I had obviously read a little bit on the topic and could not be oblivious uh, to Timothy Leary and the psychedelic movement that was going on. Uh, we have to understand that, and, and I think it was a, a blessing that we experienced in the baby boomer generation, that we at least 
were born in a generation where we had the illusion that we were definitely going to change the world through the civil <laughs> rights movement, uh, through the anti-war movement, which I believe was uh, successful in ending the Vietnam War, uh, through the uh, Cesar Chavez and the farm workers movement, where I did my research and my doctor dissertation in anthropology at Cornell University, through the feminist movement, through the beginning of the environmental movement, which came out of the Santa Barbara oil spill in the late 60s, and, um, and the hippie movement, although I was, had been, uh, and continued to be a political organizer, and kind of looked down on the hedonist hippies sure, in a sure, way, sure. we felt it was all part of one movement. It was a part of a movement that was rebelling against uh, what we saw as a dysfunctional uh, love society that did not advocate and sponsor human growth, well-being, economic security as its values. So definitely that was part of it. And looking back today, oh my goodness, you know, over half a century, <laughs> half a century later, uh, I am amazed because we just saw ourselves as rebels and outlaws, and this was sort of a rebellious thing that we could get involved with, at how global and widespread the psychedelic movement is, and how led by the scientific and medical advances of the psychedelic renaissance uh, being um, spearheaded by people like Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins and NYU and UCLA researchers showing the healing benefits for depression, for post-traumatic stress disorder that psychedelics are having. I am really in awe of how this has evolved. Um, at that time, after my initial frightening experience, I realized that I, I didn't get the instant nirvana, you know, the Satori level 24 that Leary and, and Ramdas were kind of talking about. So I wanted to learn more and I, and I came to understand that the experiences I, ha I were having were a reflection of, you know, deep fears and anxieties that I had about life at that time. And for me, uh, as a seeker for deeper understanding, deeper truth, and being an anthropologist and knowing that for millennia, I mean, we have the earliest archaeological records going back um, you know, 11,000 years to the, to the uh, mountain uh, shamans of Algeria, where you see a, a beheaded mushroom shaman decorated all over his body with, with mushrooms. That, Tribal societies and also great world religions had approached these substances as portals to the sacred. And I looked at them that way. Uh, I didn't see this as a recreational activity. In fact, the seminal activities that I've had, I would always approach them with cleansing, fasting, no sex before, uh, light diet, to try to open myself up to having, to letting the spirit come through. I know there are many different approaches to that. Today, there's a medical model. There's a hedonistic model. Let's party and have fun. And there's a Netflix film that's come out about have a good trip and it's celebrities talking about their psychedelic experiences, almost cast it as a, as a you know, strange experience party drug. Uh, there's certainly a medical model being developed, but I really saw it 
uh, as a portal to the sacred. In fact, for Julie and myself, um, being agnostic uh, at, at best, this was really our first experience of the divine. And this is why uh, significant researchers like Carl Rook at Boston University relabeled psychedelics as entheogens, entheogens from the Greek word, root words, and within, theo, God, divine, theos, and gen, generate, to generate the divine within. And we have found that uh, this is what our experience was, that it opened up at times a portal to divine wisdom, to cosmic consciousness, to true mystical experience. And what I find to be amazing, and I don't use that word lightly, is that in the research that's going on at Johns Hopkins, with successful reduction of anxiety for terminally ill cancer patients, and with MDMA for uh, overcoming the trauma of post-traumatic stress disorder, the mystical experience is the key to successful therapeutic hearing, healing. The mystical experience is the key to successful therapeutic healing. And in fact, the, it is the intensity of the mystical experience that's directly correlated with um, success, successful psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Now, I had these kinds of experiences on my own, not in a therapeutic setting, um, spontaneously using, at times, LSD, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. But again, the mystical experience was at the key, at the center of these. Um, <clears throat> thanks, Rick. Uh, I'm really interested in in that particular uh, uh, angle that mystical experience is is key to healing because I feel like uh, going back to the uh, mushroom iconography, the psychedelic iconography in Christianity, uh, it, it seems to me that the church or or uh, Gnostic traditions served different kinds of purposes uh, than they do now. So we look at religion as detached from life, a larger sense of life. And it, it seems to me like all of this might have been folded in together uh, it, it is centuries ago or whatever. And so this direct, direct line to the divine, the ability to find the divine within with the use of uh, certain uh, plant medicines, it, it, to me, it's, there's this practical level to it where, where we kind of view things as partying or, or, or just about the mystical and we separate that from other parts of life. I think that other, at other times there was more uh, consolidation, that, that this, was all, this experience was more integrated. Yes, there's no doubt about that. And the, uh, let me make two reference points to this. One is from our research with the psychedelic gospels and also the research that's gone on on the role of psychedelics in historical world religions. 
mystical experience isn't the key, as it's the fundamental basis, an experience of the divine, of knowing the authentic voice of the god or the goddess of religion. And the cover of our book shows an image from the prayer book called the Great Canterbury Psalter that was created in the uh, places where the scriptorum at Canterbury Cathedral around 1180. And it is a series, this, this prayer book begins with a uh, series of illustrations, richly drawn, richly colored and illustrated with sort of gold leaf embedded there. And it shows God creating plants in Genesis, but actually God is creating psychedelic mushrooms. And there are four psychoactive mushrooms in the creation. What I find very interesting, the book goes on through the ministry of Jesus after he's baptized. And he's on his healing mission. And there is an image there of uh, one of the stories we know of Jesus as a healer, Jesus healing the leper. And in that panel of the folio, we see Jesus laying his hands on the leper and performing a healing ceremony. And the scroll in the leper's left hand, which is in Latin, which translates to master, if you want, you may cleanse me. Curiously, the scroll that the leper is holding is not directed upward toward Jesus, but points to and merges with the stem of a tan psilocybin mushroom at the base of the panel. In turn, Jesus is holding a scroll and this is the way they showed communication in these drawings, in his left hand that extends to the back of the leper that says, I want to be cleansed. Here, the biblical artist is making a direct link between Jesus's healing ministry and the curing power of sacred mushrooms. So we need to understand that in many tribal societies, including among Maria Sabina of the Mazatec Indians of Mexico, where the Westerners would come in looking for God, looking for the mystical experience, it was very often used for the fundamental process of healing. Now, let's talk a little bit about what is a mystical experience? Well, uh, a mystical experience includes a sense of cosmic unity and sacredness. You're connected with all living things. A positive mood and attitude that comes into your being a transcendence of time and space. This is out of time and space. A sense of meeting your true or authentic voice or having an authentic voice of the Godhood come through you. And the experience is usually ineffable. In other words, it cannot easily be put into words. Now, the research that went on on mystical experience, because in the 60s and in the 70s, you know, there were many anecdotal uh, stories about, and certainly people like Leary were saying, well, you know, you'll experience God, you'll know God, you'll experience the divine. So a student of Timothy Leary's by the name of Walter Pankey, who was a graduate student in Leary's psilocybin project, conducted a study in 1962 uh, known as the Miracle of Marsh Chapel. And it is a true double-blind experiment to see if psilocybin administered in a religious setting could induce a mystical experience. And Panky took 20 
Protestant divinity students, and he put them in a lower room in Marsh Chapel at Boston University. And one, and it was on the, it was uh, the uh, Easter Sunday um, experiment. It's also known as the Good Friday. I'm sorry, it's the Good Friday. It's known as the Good Friday experiment. And one half of the students, ten, were given a significant dose of psilocybin, and the other ten were given a placebo, niacin, B12. Well, nine out of the ten who were given the psilocybin had a full-blown religious or mystical experience, including Houston Smith, who went on to become a very well-known professor of religion, who said it was the most incredible cosmic homecoming he has ever experienced. And now he truly understood the things he had been reading about and studying in the Bible for, for many years. Uh, the research was validated by questionnaires to the students and by the observations of, of researchers who were there. And then there was, 25 years later, a follow-up study to Panky's Good Friday experiment conducted by Rick Doblin, who is the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic uh, Studies, um, MAPS, M-A-P-S dot org. And in his 25-year follow-up study, Doblin found and found seven of the, of the people who were in the original Marsh Chapel study, and all of them said that their psilocybin experience was either one, the most significant experience of their life, or one of the most significant experiences of their life and had positive benefits. One of the uh, founders or, or past president of the American Psychological Association said that nowhere in the history of religious studies has there been a more rigorously documented and controlled and scientifically valid study showing that psychedelics could truly occasion or induce a mystical experience. Later on, at Johns Hopkins, which has become a center of psychedelic research under Roland Griffith, who is Griffiths, uh, who is known as the grandfather of the psychedelic renaissance, in 2006 and 2008, uh, Griffiths conducted two pieces of research on psilocybin and mystical experience in which he validated the findings of the miracle of Marsh Chapel. And in that research, um, Griffiths and his associates, including Matt Johnson, uh, found that yes, indeed, psilocybin could create a lasting mystical experience and it could be safely taken in a structured setting, that it was among the most five meaningful life experiences for the majority of the people in the research, and it had documented improvements in mood and the quality of life. For one year, they were able to trace that 14 months after the particular study. So here we have several things that are remarkable. We have the predictable occasioning or generation of a mystical experience in a university laboratory setting. And in this setting, it was done on uh, people with advanced or terminal cancer. 
And what they found was it reduced fear of death, it reduced anxiety over death. And so you have what we might call white-coated shamans or modern researchers inducing a religious experience. Number two, they validated that these people had experiences of unity and sacredness, of positive lasting mood changes, of transcendence of time and space, of a sense of of coming to meet their authoritative spiritual self or true voice, which alleviated their fear of death, and that these experiences were to a great extent beyond time and space and difficult to put onto words. In fact, the intensity of the dosage, the higher the dose. So we talk about set, what is the mental set you're bringing to the experience? We talk about setting. What is the environment that it's being taken in? In this case, with eye shades on, relaxed, lying down on a couch with two therapists uh, sitting next to you to be available to help guide you. But the other important factor is the dose. And these were relatively high-dose psilocybin, um, synthetic psilocybin dosages about uh, 20 to 30 uh, micrograms per 70 kilograms of body weight, equivalent to about four grams of dried psilocybin cubensis mushrooms. The higher the dose, the more meaningful, the, the greater number of people who said this was one of the most meaningful lifetime experiences. The higher the dose, the more people, the greater percentage, up to 70%, who said it was the most spiritually significant experience of their lifetime. And there was a direct correlation between measured therapeutic efficiency and post-session mystical experience. And as Griffiths says, look, and I'm quoting him, he is uh, a pharmacologist, psychopharmacologist, and professor of behavioral biology at Johns Hopkins University. As he said, it is very common for people who have profound mystical type experiences to report very positive changes in attitudes about themselves, their lives, their relationships with others, end quote. And he also said, look, as a scientific phenomenon, if you can achieve or create a condition in which 70% of the subjects achieve positive, lasting results in one or two sessions, exclamation point. This is... These are quite dramatic findings. So to summarize, we've been able to create, using uh, significant dosages of psilocybin, mystical experiences in the laboratory or in a controlled research setting, and these can be replicated. And these have the people who are involved with the development of the field of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy extremely excited about the potential of this research. And that's it for part one of the interview with Professor Jerry Brown. Uh, And, you know, where where he left it right there, I think it's kind of interesting because he was starting to talk about set and setting. And I'm not sure if he actually 
uh, said this out loud, but for those who don't know, set and setting, that was a, an idea that Timothy Leary came up with in his uh, experiences and in, in, in his work. Set refers to your mental frame of mind. You know, are you coming to this with a lot of anxiety or are you coming to this with a lot of anger or fear? You might want to uh, not do that. That's your set. Your setting is your environmental framework. Your environmental framework uh, for these kinds of experiences, uh, you're probably going to have a, um, a better experience if you're not, let's say, at a carnival riding a tilt-a-whirl. Okay, that's uh, Bill Hicks had a had a bit that he did about how stupid that is. You might consider going to a cool place out in the woods or out in nature at the beach, you know, not in the sunshine. That's, that's, that will be miserable. Uh, but, you, you know, find a nice, quiet, dark place that, uh, that you feel comfortable in. And I, I made a few notes, you know, uh, for, for those who are um, considering uh, doing, doing some of this work, things I think are very important. This is simple stuff. Hydrate. You want to drink something the whole time, uh, just just to hydrate. Don't drink alcohol, or if you do, I mean, just realize it's just it's not going to have any effect except for uh, to give you a, 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 a hangover in the morning. Uh, you don't really feel the effects of alcohol uh, on psychedelics. Um, I think it's important to take vitamin C because vitamin C gets used up a lot when you're when you're doing this. It seems vitamin C seems to uh, be associated with uh, feeling better throughout the the whole experience. If you have situational asthma or asthma, uh, I found, and this was surprising, I found that um, it's nice to have an, an inhaler around because for whatever reason, I don't know what it is that triggers this, but a lot of people um, can experience situational asthma when, when they uh, uh, experiment with, with psychedelics. So have a, an inhaler close to you if you have something like that. And um, wear comfortable clothes. And I wanted to make this note right here. In Have a Nice Trip, one of the stories was um, two guys, and I can't remember who they are right off the top of my head, but they were really into Hunter Thompson. And so they were in their late teens, like 19, before they were going off to college, and they hop in a car with a Hunter Thompson-esque uh, briefcase full of all different kinds of substances. Um, I mean, the list went on and on, just like it might in a Hunter Thompson novel. Do not do that. You don't need to do that. That's not necessary. That's going to lead to bad things. If you're doing something like this, just do something like this. Just do this thing and pay attention to this thing. And one of the things that Jerry Brown said that I thought made a lot of sense and is super good advice for anybody is um, have an intention. Just have a thought, have, have a question, have a thing that you're working on, you know, that you want to 
an answer to or you want to kind of delve into and deal with that, you know, deal with that thing and just sort of have that intention or have the intention that you're just going to have a relaxing good time or whatever it is, but you have to set an intention and to go into uh, an experience or an experiment with this sort of thing in a safe environment with people you like who aren't going to be all around you going, are you 19 miles high? Are you flying like a bird now? You don't want those people around you. So no assholes. All right. Um, uh, Good people. uh, And also don't be afraid to just walk off by yourself. Just, you know, if it feels like you want to, not be a part of everyone sitting around and giggling. That's okay. You know, go outside and look at a tree. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. Do that. Um, that's my advice. That's uh, I am, I am not a medical uh, psychedelics doctor, but um, Hey, look, that might be in the cards. looks like that's a, a, a big open field and I might be the right age according to a, uh, according to the the maps director there. Okay, we're going to switch gears. We're going to st- we're we're going to talk about the Kings Bay Plowshare 7. These are Catholic workers convicted of protesting nuclear weapons. They were um uh convicted in October on October 24 on four federal crimes. These activists are grandparents, parents and caregivers. The Kings Bay Plowshare 7 includes Dorothy Day's granddaughter, uh Martha Hennessy. Um these are members of the Catholic worker community. We got Claire Grady who describes her Plowshare's activism as a sacramental response to God's call to disarm. Uh, these people were arrested at uh, Griffiths Air Force Base, um, and you know they were they were doing what you do. Uh, this this is important work. And now that I think about it, it seems like Jeremy Scahill did a piece on this not too long ago, maybe in December. I'll try to dig that up and put that link in the show notes. So without further ado, let's get right to it which means I have to find it. Here it is. Kings Bay Plowshares. This is from the press conference. Enjoy. We are gathered here today on this web seminar to talk with the activists who carried out the Plowshares action, anti-nuclear action uh, in Kings Bay in Georgia. And they did their action on Martin Luther King Day uh, in uh, 2018. And we are gathering here with some of the defendants in that case who are going to be sentenced very, very soon uh, and face potentially very lengthy prison sentences. Um, And we're gathering at a time when uh, all of us are watching in horror uh, at uh, a death toll in this country that is now uh, nearing 90,000. And if you if you just stop to think about that horror and the fact that uh, it's clear much of it could have been prevented by a much more effective response and also at the reality that this virus may not discriminate in terms of who it uh, infects, but the system that we have in this country, in the United States, certainly does discriminate. And that's why we're seeing the rate of deaths and infections so high among poor people, among economically disadvantaged or economically targeted people, 
um, among African Americans and indigenous people and the Latinx community in this country. And the people that are gathering on this call who are facing uh, the loss of their own individual liberty act opposing uh, a system that wages war across the world and does so in part by theft from the poor of this country and the world. Um, I consider the people who did the Kings Bay, Kings Bay Plowshares action uh, to be the conscience of our nation, particularly at this moment when Donald Trump is in power and is uh, running a masterclass in a, com a lethal combination of incompetence, cronyism, and threatening states that don't prostrate before him with loss of very vital aid. Um, and before I bring in our panelists for today, I also want to point out that the U.S. Senate, in an overwhelmingly bipartisan fashion, uh, just reauthorized some of the most sweeping surveillance tools available to the U.S. government. And it was a vote uh, that uh, resulted in an 80 to 16 approval of sweeping surveillance powers that at this moment in time are going to reside in the hands of one of the most atrocious attorneys general to ever serve in the United States, William Barr. Uh, Democrats who are constantly telling us that Donald Trump is the most dangerous president in U.S. history uh, cast aside all of their concerns about his authoritarianism, his lawlessness, his danger to further empower him and his attorney general. I raise this because the kinds of actions that the Kings Bay Plowshare folks did uh, occur, have occurred under both Democratic and Republican administrations, and they have involved activists who see clearly the system for what it is. Donald Trump is not an anomaly of U.S. history. Donald Trump is a logical product of a failed state, a state that fails to take care of the most vulnerable, uh, that fails to take care of the most targeted that fails to preserve even basic notions of a safety net for the poor, and yet has endless resources to spend spying on the world, spying on its own citizens, and waging war uh, the world over. So we gather at ve in, in very dark times indeed, um, but we also find hope in the actions of, of those who act regardless of who is in power because they understand that the issue is this system that steals from the poor to wage war overwhelmingly against the poor. So over the course of the next hour or so that we're gathered here together, we're going to hear from some of these uh, defendants in this case, some of these uh, dedicated activists, as well as from one of their attorneys, Bill Quigley, who is not just uh, a lawyer who defends plowshares activists, but has had his own uh, work in justice uh, rooted in always uh, stating a preferential option for the poor uh, in confronting systems of injustice and empire. And just quickly, I want to share with uh, people who may not be familiar uh, with these individuals that we're going to be hearing from today who did this plowshares action uh, at the Kings Bay in Georgia. Um, Liz McAllister, who is watching, hello, Liz, but is not going to be able to participate today, uh, was one of the founders of Jonah House in Baltimore, Maryland, has lived her entire adult life in community and in resistance, and is 
I, I think one of the most remarkable and humble people uh, that we have had the honor of knowing and sharing our time on this planet with. Uh, Mark Colville is from the Amistad Catholic Worker in New Haven, Connecticut. Patrick O'Neill uh, from the Father Charlie Mulholland Catholic Worker uh, in Garner, North Carolina. Uh, Martha Hennessy, who is an activist in her own right and also the granddaughter of Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. Uh, Martha represents the Mary House Catholic Worker here in New York City. Carmen Trada, uh, who is online but is uh, probably not going to be able to uh, join us from a speaking position today, represents the St. Joseph's House Catholic Worker in New York. Uh, Claire Grady uh, is joining us, representing her community in uh, Ithaca, New York, at the Catholic Worker. And behind bars, still to this moment, is the Jesuit priest, Father Steve Kelly. He's not with us on this call, but he is. Uh, awaiting his final sentencing in the Glynn County Jail. He's been there for uh, two years since this action at the Trident Nuclear Sub Base in St. Mary's, Georgia, on April 4th, 2018. Again, uh, Martin Luther King Day. So we're going to open it up here. We thank the people who have uh, joined us. Uh, also, last week, we had a tremendous number of people uh, joining our forum uh, and, and also uh, then watching it online. So if you're watching this and you think that friends of yours or colleagues or even somebody that you argue with might be interested in hearing the perspective of uh, anti-war activists, peace activists, who may be going to prison uh, in the time of Donald Trump for the audacity of saying no to nuclear weapons, spread the word, share this link. Um, but I want to thank everybody who's here, and uh, we are going to begin with some uh, overview remarks from Mark Colville from the Amistad Catholic Worker in New Haven, Connecticut. Mark, I hand it off uh, to you from here, and thanks so much for being with us today. Um, anyway, thank you again, Jeremy, for uh, for being with us again this week and, and being uh, willing to facilitate us. Um, and you know, I know I know the agenda is kind of tight, and I'll I'll be brief. But as uh, I do want to echo uh, your uh, gratitude to everybody. Uh, who tuned in last week to the to the webinar? I, I understand it was over 3,500 people that uh, that had a chance to watch that. And if you're coming back this week, I guess we can call you a binge watcher and uh, and and thank you. So um, yeah, um, I just want to describe uh, for a couple minutes, uh, kind of orient folks to uh, to where we're at here, and then sort of update you with regard to the sentencing that. As Jeremy mentioned, we're facing at the uh, uh, end of next week. Um, so the Plowshares movement, which began in 1980 with an action in uh, King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, at the GE plant there uh, addressing nuclear weapons, um, uh, Plowshares movement is based in in the uh, teachings, the witness of the of the great Hebrew prophet Isaiah. Um, uh, specifically, there's a, a, a passage in um, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, which, which uh, calls on nations to hammer swords into plowshares as the ultimate uh, act of liberation for all of humanity and creation. Um, uh, Isaiah pretty much sums up uh, his, his prophecies by, um, uh, you know, by uh, articulating this, this as the great hope of humanity that we... Uh, we get to a situation where uh, nations no longer uh, either train or teach uh, their children to make war again. 
Um, the Plowshares Movement takes this prophecy and tries to enflesh it now in history. Um, uh, understanding uh, from a political perspective, understanding that nations um, and particularly empires are incapable of doing this, incapable of disarming, and it becomes the uh, the right and the will uh, and the purpose of the people, uh, usually in small communities, to then go forward and, and do this. Um, we believe we have a legal right to do it, uh, as well as an obvious moral right uh, to undertake these actions. And so, uh, it, it's a uh, what what we would call, from a religious perspective, a, a, a sacramental action. In, in that it, it calls forth a reality into the world uh, that is that is present but not yet real. And uh, peace and disarmament are uh, are the things that we're trying to call into reality with these actions. Typically, people take household hammers um, uh, as symbols to uh, to hammer on these on these weapons and the delivery systems of these weapons. Um, and uh, we use blood, usually our own uh, blood, safely drawn as, a, as another symbol um, of uh, bringing out into the light which is that which is unseen, the blood that uh, flows on the other end of these weapons when they are launched, and even when they are not. Um, others will speak more about that. Um, I just want a, a, um, a brief little, uh, uh, maybe call this a little catechism lesson if you like, but um, I, I want to say that we, you know, we kind of come from this uh, perspective of the New Testament. Okay, I, I believe that um, the uh, the language and the worldview that is found in the New Testament, in all of it really, um, arises from you know, it arises from a context of, of empire and occupation and imperialism, very much like uh, the context that we are living in today. And so the um, the language and the, and the worldview that arises from the New Testament uh, can really help to clarify for us, uh, or it has, I should say, for the seven of us, um, uh, the reality that we're living in today. And secondly, about the, the, the worldview uh, of the New Testament, it, it, it's, it's pretty much imbued with, um, with a consciousness of, of spiritual reality. Both individual, uh, in, in other words, um, there's there's a common understanding that arises from the New Testament that this, uh, there's a spirit behind all of us, not only individually, but there's a spirit behind the institutions uh, and the collectives in in our lives um, and in history. And those spirits, you know, again in this New Testament worldview, really direct uh, the movement of evil and good in the world. Um, and so when we take up uh, these sacramental symbolic actions called plowshares, um, we're engaging that reality. We're engaging those powers. The, the New Testament uses the word uh, principalities and powers. Um, so we form gospel-based communities um, that are in constant struggle against evil as it manifests itself through the institutions, the principalities and powers in, uh, in the world. Um, our power against evil lies in unmasking the demons that exert control uh, and violent domination over people and, and creation. Um, bringing bringing what, is, uh, what is in darkness out into the light, uh, uh, naming evil and turning from it towards good. Uh, uh, 
naming our present reality. That, that these are this is kind of a necessary first step toward engaging and and uh, and resisting evil. And so that's um that's what a plowshare's action uh, tries to undertake. And you know it it's significant to me that um, uh, the the pandemic that we're that we're living under now is is in many ways uh, also an unmasking of that of, of the reality in which we're living now if we're paying attention. Um, and so that's that's our, our uh, maybe it's our, our job right now as human beings to pay attention. Um, and so that's that's basically what we're trying to do. Um, we're well into our third year here uh, now uh, in terms of being what I would uh, say like in the dock for this for this action that we undertook at Kings Bay Naval Base in um, in southern Georgia, where uh, six of the uh, most uh, devastating and destructive weapons ever created by human civilization are our home ported. Um, we were uh, we were convicted at a trial that happened last October, um, a trial in which it was clear to many of us, if not most of us, that the verdict was the verdict was already in place before the proceedings started. Um, and the law was then cut and pasted around that that verdict in order to ensure that the legality of nuclear weapons uh, could not be questioned. Um, that, was, that would be my brief summary of how the trial went. Um, we were convicted of uh, three felonies and a misdemeanor. Um, and as Jeremy indicated, uh, we're now uh, awaiting sentencing. Uh, awaiting sentencing in the, in the context of lockdown pandemic and 70 of the uh, people in the federal prison system who have been tested have tested positive. Um, uh, so we're very much in a discernment mode at this moment, uh, the seven of us. While sentencing is is an individual um, uh, reality, it's probably, uh, yeah, it, it, we go before the court as individuals uh, to be punished, and yet we're going forth as a community as well, um, despite the government's attempts to separate and uh, isolate uh, and divide us uh, through this process. Um, and so we, we're engaged in a very intense discernment process right now about how we're going to handle the sentence. Um, the, uh, there is the offer of, of having a, a video conference of sentencing, which of course, uh, as I mentioned last week, is rather absurd when you think about it to sentence uh, somebody by video conference because it's not safe to be in a courtroom and then sentence them to federal prison. Um, it points up the, uh, the the bizarre nature of the uh, of, of what is going on in the brain of this uh, of this legal system and this government. Um, but that's where we're at, now. and we we particularly remember um, uh, as we discern through this that the the call to be in solidarity with people uh, who are not able to get out of the dock. You know, um, we have options. Um, and we're trying to uh, we're trying to go forward in such a way that we are in solidarity with the victims of of, uh, of empire and the empire's violence and imperialist uh, policies. And so I'll uh, I'll leave it there. I'm hoping that others can unpack uh, uh, some of what uh, has been mentioned here in the overview. And again, thank you all for tuning in. And Mark, in a, in a bit, when we speak to Bill Quigley about the legal aspect of this, we're going to be also asking him to uh, 
speak a bit to the defense that all of you put forward in, in this court. Um, but next, we're going to hear from Patrick O'Neill, uh, one of the defendants who, like yourself, Mark, is also uh, facing a uh, potentially lengthy prison sentence. Um, so, Patrick, the floor is yours. Hey, thanks, everybody. <clears throat> thanks, Mark and Jeremy, for that introduction. And thank you for everybody who's uh, being part of the webinar. <clears throat> it's, it's good to be with everyone, and it's good to have a sense that there's support. You know, when, when we decided to go to Kings Bay and address Tridents on the East Coast, uh, we really were going into a, a black hole, uh, which is more commonly known. And I live in North Carolina, so I'm the only one of the seven defendants who's from the South. But Southeast Georgia is what we would call the deep South. And as you know, uh, African-American men can be gunned down on the streets of the same county in which Steve Kelly's in jail right now. Uh, the Deep South has maintained uh, a hold on its reputation. It's really not a stereotype, it's just a fact of life. And we went down there, uh, and I guess, I, I don't think any of us were prepared for what, actually, what we actually experienced. Because when we stepped into this black hole, we didn't realize that there was a love affair with the Trident going on in St. Mary's, Georgia. Literally a love affair. Uh, for 35 years, nobody had ever intruded, intruded on this base. No one had ever gone in there and said no to the greatest abomination uh, humanity's ever faced, the Trident 2D5 missiles. Every city on the planet is 15 minutes away from total Armageddon. And we went there to say no. And this community had never heard a no in this way before. There'd been, there'd been protests and there's been resistance. In fact, my wife, uh, Mary Ryder, was arrested at the gates of Kings Bay in 1982, maybe, no, 83. So there has been resistance there. But of course, never anything at this level as Mark said, we went in with with uh, hammers and blood. We also went in with crime scene tape and indictment of the base and spray paint to mark all of the uh, uh, statues of weapons of mass destruction as idols. But the, uh, the reception that we received was not a warm one. In fact, it's been a very, very punitive one. Uh, the media, for the most part, the mainstream media has really basically ignored us. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, this is a media blackout. I'm not even convinced that it's a blackout. I just think that they don't want to legitimize us in any way. They just don't want to give us any print, no TV stations. And you think about this, when Martin Sheen came to one of our hearings on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, you know, he's, he's a well-known celebrity, very articulate guy, and many of you may have heard him speak or met him. We called a press conference. Nobody came. Nobody came to hear Martin Sheen. The level of disinterest on the part of people in that community is overwhelming. And, you know, my co-defendant was McAllister and her late husband, Philip Berrigan, started to bring, started to bring to light this idea that what they call nuclearism is actually the state religion in the United States. We really worship the bomb. It's a, it's a case of massive idolatry. Uh, it's not like golden calves, which are harmless. The weapons that are on a Trident submarine 
represent the end of the human experiment. And these are the idols that are worshipped down there. People were just completely perplexed as to why we could come and say this was evil. And I, you know, what we're up against in this battle against nuclearism and global warming, these two global international calamities that we're trying to address, all of us as activists, is that we have to somehow overcome the complete and total indoctrination of the U.S. citizenry to believe that these nuclear weapons somehow make us safe or somehow good. And how we can do that, uh, I don't know. I just don't know. The other thing we're up against is the military-industrial complex, which Jeremy addresses so profoundly. The military-industrial complex is is, is the epitome of capitalism gone bad. And the people that are part of the military-industrial complex, they have their, not only do they not have any vested interest in peace, but disharmony and tension in the world is what makes them rich. So when you see what's going on in Venezuela and what's going on in Syria and what's going on in Yemen and what's going on in Latin America, when you see where U.S. military-industrial complex dollars go, you know it's to keep this calamity alive. Um, we're not welcome in South Georgia, and uh, you know we've been dealt with. You know, as you, as you know, we spent uh, Martha and I, well, all of us who are out now, have spent a considerable amount of time. It'll be two years on May 24th for me and Martha and Carmen, where we've been under house arrest and curfew, wore ankle monitors for a year and a half. Our bond was fifty thousand dollars, five thousand of which had to be put up in cash. Uh, the probation office has come down very hard on us with high guidelines. They've introduced an aggravating factor, which is called an enhancement in our sentencing for risking death. They mean that we risked our own death. Now, I think there's a great irony in that. We're getting higher guidelines because we risked our own death, but the court is giving Trident submarine, Trident 2D5 missile, a free pass. They're not risking any death. They're, they're I guess they're neutral props. But the point is that the reaction that we did get in the Deep South of disinterest, of shock, uh, indicates that that's where we were supposed to go. We needed to go down there into that region of the country and try to wake people up with an action that I very much compare politically to the Boston Tea Party and theologically to Jesus cleansing the temple of the money changers. We were addressing an abomination. We were very theatrical in that uh, witness. And uh, we... Uh, got a lot of people at least having to look at things differently. So I'll, 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 I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Patrick. And, you know, also, I, I, I think of this action, um, this plowshares action, uh, in a way as, uh, as being a kind of canary in the coal mine uh, in the modern era, Patrick, to just add to some of your perspective on this, that, you know, oftentimes the people who are most right uh, early on, um, you know, all of us, I think, are familiar with the notion, and Father Dan Berrigan talked about it all the time, that, you know, prophets are not people who can see the future. They're people that understand the present um, and what is demanded of good people and people of conscience. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all that there has been very little news coverage of this from conventional, corporate, traditional media. In fact, many of the great scandals 
uh, of our time are not reported on until it blows up in uh, everyone's face. I mean, you, you, you look at the early stages of torture with the Bush administration. Uh, you look at the way that every single member of Congress voted in favor of the blank check for a global war except one, Barbara Lee. And Barbara Lee at the time, when she cast her lone vote against the forever wars uh, that passed overwhelmingly, uh, she was subjected to death threats and derision and accusations that she was unpatriotic. And history has vindicated Barbara Lee. So, you know, it can it, you, we can all become uh, filled with despair um, at, at the fact that uh, people are not paying attention and the newsmen of the day are not reporting on it. Um, but you all are in great company throughout history of people who saw the times in which we live clearly and were not listened to uh, when it mattered. And we're back. Uh, the, the, the Kings Bay 7, uh, the Plowshares group, that is important stuff. And I really thank Rick Spizak for bringing that uh, press conference to us. And now we have on the line, we have Janine Moloch with the Justice Report. Hey, Janine, what's up this week? Hey, Brooke. Well, this is about what's going on with the Mike Flynn uh, case. So I'm just going to go straight into it. This is about, again, the toxic Trump administration and the GOP enablers who fuel Trump's fascism. Recently, the DOJ, under the helm of Attorney General Barr, dismissed actually filed a motion to dismiss all charges against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Now, the blowback from the nation's lawyers has been vocal, finally. After almost four years of continual constitutional abuses by Donald Trump and his enablers in the GOP, the attorneys of this nation are finally crying foul. All it took was this obvious miscarriage of justice in the Flynn case. And this, this case really is about rule of law. Uh, the brief facts of the Flynn case for people that may have forgotten because this took place about, you know, three years ago, um, there were some new developments that have breathed some life into this old case. Flynn was uh, Donald Trump's first national security advisor. He was a former Army general. And before he went on to Trump's team, he was also uh, appointed by Obama for a couple of years to be the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. So, General Michael Flynn has had access to top-secret information for quite a while, and he knew the procedures for not only handling that type of information, but also for inappropriate contacts with foreign governments, especially enemy governments, of which Russia is one. So this deals with the Russian interference in the 2016 election, and Flynn got caught. He pled guilty to lying to the FBI. Uh, and this went on for about three years. You know, basically, Flynn's problem started when he had contact with a Russian official, and there was a series of high-profile leaks. He made blatant lies to the public and to the FBI, and then there's some possible questions whether or not he potentially tried to blackmail some people. Um, and basically, you know, this guy has had access to all sorts of sensitive information, now, after two years on the job, you know, he was appointed by Barack Obama in 2012 to run the Defense Intelligence Agency, and that's the top military intelligence service in the country. He was two years on the job, and he was forced out, and he was allowed to retire, and 
one of the and Colin Powell's mothers rumored basically that you know Flynn was abusive to his underlings. So Flynn launched a consulting firm and he showed up again in 2016 and he was a Trump advisor. He became a prominent campaign surrogate and he's the guy that gave this polarizing speech at the GOP convention that called for Hillary Clinton to be jailed. After Trump won, he picked Flynn to be his his first national security advisor. Now, Flynn's problems are traced back to conversations with a senior Russian official during the transition time from Obama to to Trump. He had a series of calls with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislev, and basically Flynn undermined the official U.S. position allegedly towards a United Nations resolution about Israel. That's in the court findings and some other things as well. And he, the calls were intercepted by routine surveillance of U.S. surveillance of foreign diplomats. And the details leaked to the press. And, uh, you know, Flynn misled people in the Trump administration. Uh, he claimed that sanctions hadn't been discussed and several other things. But, again, the calls have been intercepted by U.S. intelligence, the FBI, and DOJ, uh, knew that he had been lying, and so basically, you know, he was fired in 2017 after three weeks in the job, and then things got worse for Flynn because in 2017, Robert Mueller was doing his investigation, and he looked over Flynn's conduct, uh, including some undisclosed pro-Turkey lobbying in 2016, Flynn and Mueller reached a plea agreement in 2017, and Flynn agreed to help Mueller's probe, and actually, and he did provide evidence against Trump. Mueller let Flynn, in turn, plead guilty to one, ki- one count of lying to the FBI, and then Mueller also agreed not to bring charges against Flynn for his other lies or on any of the illegal lobbying. So this was a plea deal. And the case progressed. Until June of 2019, Flynn fired his lawyers and brought on a new team of right-wing attorneys. And instead of just letting the case, you know, finish up and proceed to sentencing, because he, you know, he pled guilty to one count, um, his lawyers started accusing the FBI of bias and misconduct, and then they asked to withdraw his guilty plea. So A.G. William Barr took a very strange step. He asked us, first of all, he brought in a separate team of federal prosecutors to review case files. And the outside team provided Flynn's lawyers with some documents. And um, Flynn's team, uh, so basically, Flynn's team um, said the charges should be dropped, even though Flynn admitted his guilt under oath. And the Justice Department, under A.G. Barr, last week said they told the federal judge, Emmett Sullivan, that they were basically asking to dismiss the charges against Flynn. And this is something that's highly unusual. There are a lot of career prosecutors that said, look, this is just a political, you know, political corruption. Now, the ball is in the judge's court, and he it's unusual. Usually judges will grant DOJ's request to drop charges, but he doesn't have to do that, okay? And so this judge said that he was bringing in some outside parties to review the case, and he also, uh, a group of former Watergate prosecutors have been brought in, according to CNN, to, and they want to argue the case against Flynn. 
So this isn't done, but the problem is that, you know, this really is about rule of law, okay? Um, the case against Mike Flynn has serious ramifications. Uh, it speaks to the possible treasonous dealings with enemy states, which Russia has won. Flynn had so much access to top-secret intelligence. Now, normally the GOP would be screaming national security, but not in the GOP of Trump with its abnormally friendly relationship with Putin. The national security concern aside, we have a national security advisor who's been a military careerist as a general, familiar with the proper procedures for handling national security intelligence, who not only was caught having improper communications with foreign nationals, but he lied repeatedly and he pled guilty. Flynn pled guilty in order to avoid further prosecution. The evidence was there to convict him. Now Attorney General Barr wants the charges dropped as Flynn's partisan attorneys have demanded. Now, if, the, if Barr's allowed to write a get-out-of-jail-free card for Flynn, then the rule of law is reduced to a sad joke, and quite a few attorney groups have really protested about this. We know that Trump views himself as the only law that counts. Trump has flaunted the law throughout his, his entire life, both before getting in office and now. But let's face the inconvenient truth that Trump couldn't have shredded the Constitution, our civil and human rights, and all of this without his enablers in Congress. And the most egregious attack against rule of law itself comes from Attorney General Bill Barr, and most recently when he, when he actually asked to drop charges against Mike Flynn in the face of Clint, Flynn's confessions. If there was ever a time to impeach a cabinet member, it's now. A.G. Barr must be impeached and, have his, and I say have his license to practice law permanently revoked. The term rule of law has been bandied about without much subtext, and it's time to remind ourselves what actually constitutes rule of law. So, from, so I'm going to try and go as fast as I can, but as from the U.S. Courts, Federal Courts website, quote, the U.S. Courts were created under Article III of the Constitution to administer justice fairly and impartially within the jurisdiction established by the Constitution and Congress, okay, end quote. It's the fair and impartial part of the justice system that Attorney General Bill Barr has conveniently cast aside like yesterday's trash. This shouldn't shock anyone as, AG, as Bill Barr has a lengthy history active wor actively working to sabotage not only fair and impartial justice in favor of the wealthy elite, but also to sabotage democracy itself. The idea articulated as rule of law under the U.S. government and its courts is discussed further on that website. So... You know, again, A.G. Barr loves to quote, like most uh, conservatives, the Federalist Society. Well, here's a response to them. Um, you know, the Federalist Society, in my opinion, has worked feverishly to justify, justify a new aristocracy of wealth uh, as opposed to bloodlines. And this Federalist Society, which Bill Barr admires and serves, wrongfully claims that the presidency is all-powerful by virtue of Article II and cannot be challenged, including by the courts. Bill Barr's career trajectory has documented a record of challenging the courts and demanding the courts merely rubber stamp the idle whims of the president. And here's some evidence that really challenges those incorrect assumptions. So over 200 years ago, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, John Jay published a series of essays the Federalist Society loves to quote, and these are referred to as the Federalist Papers. But if you go to Federalist Number 78, that's the one that created the federal courts. And to quote it, it says, the federal courts were, quote, designed to be an intermediary, intermediate body between the people and their legislature, end quote, in order to ensure the people's representatives acted only within authority given to Congress under the Constitution. 
Federal 78 also states that if any law passed by Congress, quote, conflicts with the Constitution, the Constitution ought to be preferred to the statute, the intention of the people, to the intention of their agents. So this really speaks to rule of law and, why, and, the, and the concept of rule of law. And the, the rule of law is a principle where all persons, institutions, and entities are held accountable to laws that are the following. The laws have to be publicly promulgated. They have to be equally enforced. And the Mike Flynn case shows that's not the case. They have to be independently adjudicated and consistent with international human rights principles. Now, unfortunately, Bill Barr has made it his mission in life to elevate the presidency as a final and ultimate power, and he has no problem sacrificing rule of law in order to achieve that partisan political aim. So here's the other thing is this. We have the World Justice Project, which we've quoted before, and it's an international leader, and several presidents and Supreme Court justices are on their board, um, their board of uh, the chair, and they've articulated universal principles required to be present in a legal system to, for that to be called rule of law. The four universal principles are accountability, just laws. In other words, laws that are clear, publicized, and stable and are applied evenly. Okay? Again, when there's favoritism to someone like Mike Flynn, who is clearly guilty, and yet you have basically somebody like Michael Brown who never received justice, you don't have laws that are applied evenly. Open government, okay? That means the processes by which they perform their duties are enacted, administered, and enforced fairly and efficiently in the open and accessible justice. Now, that also speaks to criminal justice and subfactors. And in criminal justice, and that's what we're talking about, Mike Flynn committed a crime. Criminal, they, they have several subfactors. Criminal investigation systems should be effective. Criminal adjudication systems should be timely and effective. Correctional system, in fact, should be effective in reducing criminal behavior. The criminal justice system should be impartial. Again, we see a lot of, there's nothing impartial about Mike Flynn getting off the hook. Criminal justice system is free of corruption. This looks like the president wanted Mike Flynn free for whatever reason and A.G. Barr accommodated the criminal justice system is free of improper government influence. Again, I know it's obvious. And due process of law and rights of the accused. From this perspective, the Trump administration DOJ under Bill Barr is unable and unwilling to bring forth any substantive evidence that those last three are in compliance. In fact, the obvious politicization of the DOJ under Bill Barr has demonstrated a clear violation of those three principles. Uh, especially impartiality and free from government corruption and influence. The DOJ under Bill Barr does not appear to be impartial, free from corruption, or free from improper government, a.k.a. presidential influence, and his decision to drop all charges against Mike Flynn is evidence enough to prove that Barr should be removed from office by impeachment. Now, there's been a, there's been a big furor in the legal community. People, these attorneys on both sides of the political aisle and take a drink there, are absolutely furious because this is truly a compromise in their duty as, you know, actually officers of the court. Um, and it's not just the Mike Flynn case either. Jonathan Kravis was a formal, former federal prosecutor, and he resigned over the way Barr handled the Roger Stone case. 
because again, Barr argued for leniency in in sentencing, and you know, basically he argued, he also wrote a Washington Post op-ed on the Flynn decision recently. And Kravis said that the more relaxed sentence for Stone was a disastrous mistake that once again, quote, put political patronage ahead of its commitment to rule of law. And Kravis also wrote, I quote, I believe the department's handling of these matters is profoundly misguided. He's, quote, convinced the department's conduct in the Stone and Flynn cases will do lasting damage to the institution. Kravis also, end quote, Kravis also said that Dedicated public servants that are at DOJ now, quote, cannot respond publicly to those who claim that the department acted appropriately in those cases. So you have quite a bit of furor here. And when you go further down, there is, um, excuse me, we also have a letter that, there were several letters actually, a letter that was uh, submitted to the House Committee um, and this is from a group called Lawyers Allied to Uphold the Rule of Law. Now, it's a nationwide nonpartisan coalition of lawyers, legal scholars, and retired judges. And they are fighting to make sure that everybody, no matter what their position in life is, receives fair and impartial de- justice. And um, in this letter, um, major points were quoted that the rule of law is not simply an abstract proposition. They also noted that the Justice Department's Justice Manual, that's a manual that governs the conduct of all DOJ lawyers, including the Attorney General, explains clearly that, quote, the rule of law depends on the even-handed administration of justice, end quote, and the Department's legal decisions, quote, must be part impartial and insulated from political influence. And it also says the Department's prosecutorial powers must be, quote, exercised free from partisan consideration, end quote. That is crystal clear. Prosecutions from DOJ cannot be political to punish, say, a a sitting president's enemies. They can't also be lenient to help their friends. And the letter went on to say, and I'm going to read directly from the letter now, quote, we are deeply troubled by the disregard, in some cases, outright scorn for crucial protections against partisan influence and the lack of accountability shown by Department of Justice leadership and high-ranking members of the administration. And they go on and they point out how the former DOJ official, there was a former DOJ official that was victim and had to suffer through two years of being investigated by the FBI. And what was this DOJ official's crime? They angered Trump. The, the investigation didn't come up with anything, but again, this person who was a DOJ lawyer had to suffer through a two-year FBI investigation because Trump was angry at them. And if this wasn't an abuse of power, then I don't know what is. And A.G. Bill Barr did nothing to stop it. He allowed it to go on. This And then further, this, law, this uh, letter, they also complained that uh, Bill Barr has not only reinforced this inappropriate conduct by remaining silent, but he's also, um, he's also imposed uh, what they call arbitrary completion quotas and then also politically motivated hiring mechanisms. And this was, de- this was designed to, quote, undermine the ability of immigration judges so that in order to conduct fair and individualized um, adjudication. And so... The, Janine, can I can I uh, can I ask real quick? Uh, 
because I want to make sure that the audience is uh, keeping up here. What was you're you're reading from a letter? What what was the source on the letter? This, this group called Laurel. They are a group of ex judges, attorneys, and prosecutors, and they Laurel. are yes, and they are both. Here, I'll, I'll scroll back down. I've got it here. Um, and so they come from both sides of the political aisle. There's nothing partisan about this group. Lawyers allied mm-hmm. to uphold the rule of law. And they're nationwide. They're nonpartisan. It's a group of lawyers, legal scholars, and retired judges. And they, you know, it's very unusual for anyone in the legal profession to criticize other lawyers. All right. The idea is, you know, everybody's supposed to follow certain rules, and for them to come out and sign their names, this is a very serious thing. They are basically accusing Bill Barr of criminal malfeasance, frankly. That's what they're doing. And this this goes on. The, uh, um, I'm sorry, what? Well, um, let me just uh, ask real quick was there a was there another piece of source material from the beginning the uh, federal something um on the first part where uh flynn flynn's charges regarding sergey kislyak was this all yeah that was from cnn yeah oh okay this was the this was basically, I know I was talking fast, trying to get a lot of information in. Um, this was by CNN, and it was basically an overview of the case. And the fact oh, that Flynn had pled guilty, and he came to basically a plea deal with, with Mueller. You know, he would plead guilty to one count of lying to the FBI, which is a felony. And then and Mueller agreed not to bring charges on any of the other instances of lying that slipped to, to public officials. And Mueller also would not uh, bring charges on uh, basic Sorry. illegal lobbying as well. So, I think I found the, uh, the uh, source material and then it automatically played some music. I am so sorry. That was ridiculous. Oh, but ex DOJ okay. so, employees pen open letter criticizing Barr. Uh, that's CNN six days ago. I will put that in the show notes so that you know folks can uh, refer right. back to that. Cool. Well, and 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 there's there's more too. Okay. Um, okay. There's also a letter from what a group called DOJ alumni. Okay. So these are people that have served in the Department of Justice. And it says, quote, we the undersigned are alumni of the United States Department of Justice who have collectively served both Republican and Democratic administrations. And it goes on and it says, um, many of us have spoken up previously to condemn President Trump and Attorney General Barr's political interference in the department's law enforcement decisions as we did when Attorney General Barr overruled the sentencing recommendation of career prosecutors to seek favorable treatment for President Trump's close associate, Roger Stone. And so, and this letter goes on now where they're condemning, they call it an assault against rule of law in the case of Michael Flynn. And they say, you know, he pled guilty to lying to the FBI about his communications with the Russian ambassador to the United States. 
And then there were other events that suggested political interference in, in Flynn's prosecution. And so this is an instance where, once again, this is highly unusual. Career lawyers do not do this. And they are speaking out and they signed their names. And this list keeps growing. So this is not just partisanship. This is something where they are saying rule of law is really at risk here. And this is not unusual. Bill Barr has a, uh, a very unusual legal theory, all right? He really believes that the president um, is uh, beyond, you know, above the law. You know, he has almost a monarchical viewpoint of presidency. And that is truly frightening. Um, you know, Barr's theory on presidential accountability means that a president's not subject to any legal constraint and no law could stop him from abusing power. And this under, is under that, under that uh, heading, that executive, um, the unitary executive kind of uh, doctrine, right. uh, which, which you know, this, this was a Nixonian thing that Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld brought forward yes. through well, Bush Jr.'s administration. And, and Bill Barr served under uh, President H.W. Bush, all right, and uh -huh. he served with Cheney. So he's, you know, he's not new to any of this. This is the unitary executive on steroids, and it is truly uh -huh. dangerous because it is seeking to create a system where the rule of law does not exist. I mean, you have to realize here these are prosecutors that feel that they have to worry that they're going to be criminally prosecuted for doing their duty. And Right now, we have to look at the fact that the rule of law has been the only device that's prevented absolute tyranny because it clearly states that everyone receives equal treatment before the law, at least in theory, and receives zero privilege. And that point's rock solid. It is this rule of law that separates us from the injustices and the whims of a monarchy or a dictatorship. And we can't let rule of law be basically die from a, a death of a thousand cuts. And Bill Barr knows better. But he is actually well, you know, tracking we, the very institution he's charged with keeping track of. We talked about this before. The, the, the unitary executive was uh, theory and the way that it was put forth in uh, W's administration was absolutely uh, horrific in terms of what it did to the rule of law and the the way that the United States is, is viewed, you know, across the world and everything. And and, and, and this is going further. Because think about this. Mm -hmm. This man, Mike Flynn, pled guilty. They have the evidence on him, and they're going to just basically dismiss the charges? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in our last night, that then somebody else would get that treatment? Uh, I'm sorry, Brooke. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, yes, and, and, and unitary executive, like, like we said, I'm going to get all of this stuff in the show notes. Uh, we need to pull back that unitary executive. Maybe in the next administration, we will see something like that happen. Or happen. And uh, I, I want to thank you for this report. This is amazing. I'll, uh, I'll get the links up in the letter from the letter from the CNN uh, story. Send me any other links that you think are relevant, and I'll throw them up there too. Okay. And Janine, thank you so much for this week. And we will see you next week with more okay. on the Justice Report.
Uh, and uh, audience, thank you so much for tuning in again to Progressive News Network. It's so much uh, fun every week talking to you guys. And, uh, you know, we've got another week ahead of us. Go out, wear your masks, get some, get some vitamin D out in the sunshine. And uh, we will talk to you guys again real soon.